Hello, everyone. Today is November 30th, 2022. My guest today is Katie Stein. Katie is a small animal veterinarian. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Katie. Thanks for inviting me. This is a really cool opportunity. Yes, it's a very cool opportunity for me, too. <laughs> so how did you decide to become a veterinarian? Um, it was like a combination of random, like, events that occurred my first year of undergrad. Like, I knew I wanted to do a career in biology, um, but I didn't really know what, because I didn't really like the idea of being a human doctor. I didn't really like the idea of going into teaching or, like, research. So I kind of was scrambling for something to do. Um, and then like my dog got sick. Um, so we had to take her to a couple of vets. And I was really struck by how warm and caring they were. And I had always really loved animals. It had been something that when I was younger, I thought, oh, I'm going to be a veterinarian in the way that kids say, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut or a basketball player or whatever. So then it kind of put it into perspective of, no, this is actually a career option. So that got me thinking about that. And then I got hypnotized at a freshman like comedy show. Um, and the end of the show, the like hypnotist said, you're going to make a decision doesn't matter what about, but you're going to make a decision right now and you're going to be confident in that decision. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to be a veterinarian. And they snapped their fingers. I woke up and I was like, yep, I'm going to try just because there was a lot of kind of just critical thinking and decision making that I, I really enjoyed that process. And I'd always loved biology. So obviously there was a lot of being able to know the pathways of the body. And so the more I did it, I just kind of stuck with it and, and eventually applied to veterinary school, got in, and then became a vet and realized I didn't want to do it. <laughs> so wow. kind of like, yeah, it was a full, full kind of like four years of, of really hard effort to then be like, oh, this is actually not for me. What made you realize you don't want to do it? Or what about veterinarian makes you say that, being a veterinarian? It's very, so there's all types of veterinarians, I'll start by saying. You know, you can be a researching veterinarian. You can be some veterinarian that teaches veterinary students. But most people, when they think about veterinarian as somebody who's in a practice actually doing medicine, right? And regardless of whether you're doing cats and dogs or pigs and cattle, you're very much dealing with the people. Like a lot of it, you do need to have the medicine. The medicine is the main foundation for all your decision making. But the majority of the job is focusing on you need really strong communication skills. You need to have really good um like resilience in terms of your emotional boundaries which is something i was not very good at 
and still something that I'm working on. And you need to be able to make a lot of ethical decisions and convey those to people who might not agree with you or want to do what you see. And at the end of the day, the decision is out of your hands. You can only, unless there's clear forms of something illegal happening or animal abuse, at the end of the day, animals are considered the property of their owners or their farmers. As a veterinarian, you are not, you are able to recommend decisions for them to make and you're able to like, report them if they decide not to do those decisions. But that's all you can really do at the end of the day. So if you think, hey, I think we should really go forward with this treatment, it's what they really need because they're painful and they're gonna be suffering. But your client is saying, that sounds expensive. I don't really trust you. Um, we're just gonna wait and see. You just kind of have to be like, okay, we're gonna wait and see. Like, please sign this form saying I advised you and you're do going against my medical decision, but I that's all I can have you do. Um, so it was really taxing for me. Uh, I kind of knew going into it that it would be a lot of the people that I would be dealing with. And so initially I thought I was going to be an emergency veterinarian because then you have a lot less continuous relationships with people. You have people who come in for immediate things that need fixing. You fix them or you don't fix them and then it's done. Whereas if you're in general practice, it's very much establishing relationships with clients because you're going to be seeing them for years to come and you want to make sure that you know they trust you they respect your decision so that you can continue providing the care that the animal needs and um, but then i realized being an emergency vet requires a lot of working odd hours a lot more education like most people require internships which i wasn't keen on doing and so then it kind of fell into well i either go into research or practice now, no interest in research, so I went into practice, and again, the emotional side of things was just really taxing. It, it wasn't, a lot of people think that, you know, the worst part about being a vet is having to put animals to sleep, and it's actually one of the easiest parts of being a vet, because you never are putting an animal to sleep that you are not confident that this is the best decision for the animal's sake. It's like, this is the end of the road. There's nothing more we can do. There's nothing more I think we should do. This is how I can best help resolve this, this situation. The harder thing to deal with is when there's more you want to do or there's different things you want to do, but you can't convince the people or the people don't have the money to do what is necessary um so yeah it's it's a lot of like having to deal with going home and thinking about you have to be very good about separating your work and your home life which i was not very good at i would go home and think about my patients non-stop would have dreams about my patients and be wake up going oh my gosh i should call 
the owner of Fluffy so that I can tell them, you know, like, let's try and increase this dose of medication. Um, and at the end of the day, if something does go wrong, it's, it's on you. Um, and so that guilt and that weight can be a lot. And it was a lot for me. And it still is, which is why I work what's called relief right now, where essentially I only do, like, I work maybe one, two, maybe three days a week um, at different locations. And I essentially am like a independent contractor where I just go in to one location. If I don't like the location, I never go back there. Um, if I do, I'll ha establish a relationship and might cover shifts for them. Um, but that just allows me to kind of separate the, I don't have to have the, the continued worry and obligation on me about this, an individual animal. All I can do is, you know, I'm here for the day. I'm going to do the best that I can for them today. And then after that, it's going to be on their uh regular vets to kind of continue on or um excuse me do not bite me sorry <laughs> the cat um so yeah that's what i've been doing now because that emotional toll was just far too much for me it really took its toll on my mental health um and like there was a point where i had to i like stopped working as a veterinarian full stop for a couple of months because i i had such massive like panic attacks just thinking about going into work um so yeah that's unfortunately something that's happening a lot with our our industry at the moment um i'm just kind of one of many so it's an industry-wide problem that same aspect of separating, you know, having emotional restraint, creating boundaries between work and life. It's a very serious, uh, I mean, you know, being a doctor is also very serious, but yeah. at least, you know, most of their patients have the ability to speak for themselves and yeah, that creates a very different situation. Yeah, it's kind of like, I, I don't know anything about this field, but I always imagine it's being like a pediatrician because yes. you're talking to, like as a pediatrician, I imagine you're talking to the parents and you're trying to convince the parents to do what's right for their child, but your patient is the child and your patient can't always speak to you, can't always tell you what's wrong. Your parents don't always know what's wrong. Um, and then um, like in addition to the emotion, like a lot of the veterinary industry is suffering with like finances right now in terms of um a lot of a lot of private practices are struggling to get by and keep up with kind of these larger corporations that have amalgamated all these other smaller practices and so these smaller practices are struggling to make a living and to combat them some that some practices are overbooking their vets and that's compounding the issue um and then these larger corporations some are great i did not i personally worked for a corporation straight out of veterinary school 
Um, and for me, that particular location was not good because it was also struggling. It was doing the same thing where it was trying to increase the number of pets we were seeing constantly. And there was a lot of talk about sales, which very few vets that I know get into this. And I don't know a single vet at this point who got into the industry because they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a great business person and I love to sell, you know, more products and wellness plans and some and the corporations will usually justify it as, you know, better medicine usually is more expensive. And that is for the most part true. But you have a nice, like, ability with animals where you can always, you can work around things. You know, you can adapt to, oh, if you don't have the funds to do this, like, maybe we could try this medication and see for a few weeks, see how you do. And then we'll do a follow-up instead of doing a $200 blood test um, that might tell us nothing. But when I was in a corporate practice, it was very much pressured. I was very much pressured to, oh, no, 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 push the test, like push the test hard because that will increase, increase your average price per client. Um, and that's something that, you know, will make money for the corporation. And they would say, oh, yeah, and it would feed back to you in form of a bonus. But it just for me, for a lot of vets that I know that combined with the like having to deal with an increasing number of pets, dealing with clients, um, a lot of times being understaffed and just dealing with like that kind of emotional stress on a day to day basis has pushed a lot of vets out of the, the field. So right now, a lot of places are hiring because so many vets have left that there aren't enough incoming new graduate vets to fill those positions. Um, and unfortunately, like I graduated during COVID when everybody got a lot more pets, the shelters got emptied. So all of a sudden we have like triple the amount of pets normal and then people are staying home more and looking at their pets and noticing things that they didn't notice before when they were going to work from a nine to five. And so all of a sudden you have so many more people coming in saying like, I saw this lump or he's drinking a lot more water than normal. And that was a lot to deal with. And uh, yeah, so right now the industry has, the industry has been kind of, in a continuous down spiral um, because of like the general things I mentioned before um, combined with like what happened with COVID. So yeah, it's why it's what made me realize like I am not suited for this field because I tried, I tried working on my like emotional resilience. I like went to therapy started antidepressants um, and like was feeling in a much better place, but being in that better place, I was still unhappy and still pretty, 
pretty miserable in the field. So I I left and well, I I haven't completely left yet. I'm still in practice and I'm much, much happier doing the relief work I do now because um, it kind of allows me to bypass all those things I mentioned, like the emotional, like having individual clients, but also having to worry about making money. Um, that's really, really nice that I just get to come in. I have a flat amount that I'm make, getting that day, regardless of how much money the practice makes or not. And I can just focus on, you know, this is what's going to be right for this pet and this client. And how can we fix it so that everybody gets the best possible resolution? Um, and I make a lot more money. I have a lot more free time. So overall, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good, but I still would not uh, would not be willing to do it forever. Okay. Do you make more money because you have more years of experience now, or is it because relief nurses make more money than uh, general nurses at large corporations? Yes, it's because I don't know why I said nurses. I meant veterinarians. You're good. Um, it's because uh, relief vets make more money, um, mainly because, you know, if you're an independent contractor, the, the practice doesn't have to worry about doing matching 401k and health insurance. They're just giving you yes. money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the, the downside is that I, I do have to pay taxes four times a year. Um, but... Other than that, it's it's really flexible. My schedule, sometimes I can just be like, I don't feel like working this week, and I don't have to. Or, oh, I need, like, I'm going to go on vacation. I want to make a few extra bucks. I can pick up more shifts as I need them. Um, so it's it's because, like, one, they don't have to worry about, you know, keeping you there as it were with like 401k and health insurance but two they need they need coverage if you if a relief veterinarian doesn't come in they'll close for the day which means they will definitely lose money so it's cheaper to pay a much higher fee to a relief veterinarian to come in and that way you can stay open but you might not have the uh you know it might be a little more expensive than a regular veterinarian, but you're still going to be making some money rather than just closing for the day. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And one thing that's different about veterinarians than with doctors and nurses is that hospitals, human hospitals are required, even if the patient can't pay for their operation or their medicine they are required to to provide the care and then maybe it'll come back in the lot form of a huge bill or their insurance comes out and has to something will happen right. but the patient will receive the care so a doctor is never going to leave a hospital knowing that there could have been something done and yeah. absolutely nothing was done whereas it seems like veterinarians very often there's not enough money for this particular animal and then this animal is going to have to suffer because there's no money and there's no rule that veterinarians 
I care. Yeah. An animal. 100%. I mean, there is, we are obligated in emergency situations to provide care, regardless of if they can pay or not. So if an animal comes in and it's seizing, like having a seizure on our doorstep, we do have an obligation to take it in and administer anti-seizure medications. If it's like, you know, gasping for air, if it's having an anaphylactic response, any veterinarian, like, here's the thing. Oh boy, am I gonna cause issues for people? <laughs> if they are having a serious life-threatening emergency, we will do what human doctors do, which is yes, we will take them in, we will administer whatever needs to be done, we'll rush them into the back and triage um, ASAP without asking you, how much money do you have? Um, but, I don't know that people know that. The thing is, as a like collective, veterinarians are usually very empathetic. There's always exceptions, but oftentimes our empathy gets taken advantage of when people will just show up without an appointment, without calling in and be like, hi, my dog is limping. See it, I'm here, I'm right there. And you have to learn to turn those people away. If you're like, I have three, sir, I, I've like, the unfortunate thing is if you have a packed day and that's something I learned working at a corporation is I used to say yes to pretty much everybody. I'd be like, because I'm like, I wanna help the pet. I wanna make sure that, you know, we're giving them the care. And then in the back of my mind, because I was being really pressured by the higher ups to make more money, I was like, well, I wanna help the hospital and like make sure that we're, because we were really struggling and I wanted to make sure that we, if we could take some in, we would. But um, having to learn your limitations when you do take those in and realize, oh, now not only am I not getting a lunch, but I'm working a 12 hour day. Everybody's working overtime because we had like just one extra walk-in that wasn't an emergency, but like they didn't either have the foresight. I wanna be kind and think that they just didn't, most people don't have the foresight to think about calling ahead. But some people I know have simply just showed up with the entitlement and the expectation of like, you're a vet, take my animal. Um, and like, it just can turn a like, okay day into a bad day and a bad day into a really, is profanity okay on your channel? Yes, it is. Shit day, <laughs> a really shit day. Um, and so, learning when to be like, nope, we can't take any more. I need you to go somewhere else. Goodbye. I'm so sorry. I can't do this. Um, and also like, oh yeah, it's just, it's just a lot to, to kind of handle. Um, and I commend the people who do the job and do the job well, but, um, there's a lot that goes on that people, you know, we oftentimes will take the animals into the back and you don't see what goes on and you don't see how we're like stressing to calm your animal down. 
um, how like we're trying to put a catheter in, administer drugs, um, trying to do whatever we can. And um, it doesn't always, you know, happen the way people would want it to happen. And um, having a lot of people who are really kind is, is great when you have clients who are understanding it means the world. Like really, if, if that's like the message I can get out to people is just like being a little bit patient and understanding that we are doing the absolute best we can. Um, very few people are trying to upsell you. I won't say nobody is because I have seen people upsell shit that doesn't need to be sold to you. Um, and, but for the most part, everyone's just trying to do their best and it's always going to take a little bit longer and maybe not as smoothly as it would be in human medicine because we can't tell our patients to, hey, stay still. I'm just going to poke you for a blood draw really quick or I'm just going to do an x-ray. I need you to lie still, please. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I'm just kind of rambling about how much I don't like it. But uh, No, it's... Uh... It's, oh, I mean, it's, it's good for us to know. And a lot of people assume that veterinarians, and you already mentioned it, don't like their job because they don't like putting down animals and killing animals all the time. Yeah. But it's much deeper than that. Yeah, it's much, it's, it's a, definitely a sad part of the job. It's like, it's not something you look forward to doing um but no vet is going to euthanize an animal unless they're like confident that this is this is the right thing to do and it also is kind of like something i'm always curious about actually is like medics i or like human doctors um they're kind of like stances on like human euthanasia because for vets for us most of us like animals more than we like people so for us most of the vets i've spoken with are pro like like humanely euthanizing people if that's their decision if they have like a terminal illness that they know is gonna prolong their suffering like most vets are like on board with that and i'm always curious to hear if like medics what their opinion is because the ones i've talked to have always been like oh no you do everything you can to save a life and for vets ours is very much you do everything you can to prevent suffering um suffering is much more of a of a greater evil in veterinarians eyes than dying because it's something that we we have to deal with, you know, almost on a weekly basis, you're going to have a euthanasia come in. Sometimes every day you'll have a, a euthanasia or two, sometimes three. I've had three in one day and it was not a good day. Um, but having an animal suffer in and having sometimes clients who don't want to admit that their animal is suffering um, because for them it's hard to let go. Um, that That's really tricky to navigate around because people, 
nobody wants to hear that they're allowing that their animal is in pain that they have allowed this pain to happen nobody nobody is like willing to have that conversation even when there have been times when people have come into me and i've been like in my head i'm looking at an animal that can barely walk and i'm just like what the fuck do you mean you don't think they're in pain they can't walk this is painful this is bad um but you can't tell that to a person and expect any kind of cooperation with you from that point on and that's where you like like again having emotional resilience and being able to like rein in your own sometimes like anger at the person for like what they've allowed to happen and understanding like okay they don't understand that this is bad and like let me explain it to them and sometimes there's still there are still people who like i've met who the dog has had a torn acl they'll be limping on it i will tell them we need pain medication at the very least most likely you should be going to surgery and people always want to be like oh but they don't whine they don't seem like they're in pain and the best way i found to explain it to people is like have you ever limped before and if they say yes and like why like does it hurt why are you not walking on it it's not because oh i can't move my leg that way sometimes it is but usually it's like if i move my leg that way it hurts and i like and some people will take that on and go huh okay but other people are still really set because they don't want to hear that their animal has been suffering for you know they maybe not have not been in this has been going on a few weeks and they didn't bring it into the vet until now and they don't want to feel that shame of like oh shit yes. i've left my pet suffer for so long and so you have to be even when you want to shout at these people you have to be i think you should be gentle and be like so they're in pain they're here now let's get them some help um in the future if you see this please bring them in sooner Please don't wait so long. Cat, you said you, uh, you said you feel like that's the right approach, but are there have you ever seen the show House? Yes. Are there any yes. veterinarians that just just unload on their patients? Yes. Not completely. I I do know they're usually more seasoned vets. Um they're usually ones that have been in the field for a lot longer and have had it like up to here with people's shit and so usually those vets they're still really kind but when you do come in spouting nonsense they'll be like no um and i i have only a couple of times met people who like i'm convinced they're just like saying whatever they want to say so that uh you know they can defend themselves most of the time people just genuinely i think don't know they just genuinely don't know so i don't usually come in with that approach because i also have the like mentality of i really like educating the people who come in because in my mind if i can like have them see the signs earlier they can come in faster it can be cheaper for them and the pet doesn't have to suffer as longer and then in the long run I don't have to deal with some complex medical mystery that has devolved because we didn't catch like kidney disease early on or something like that. Um, so that's my approach. Some vets, 
like I would say more common than the house approach is like just kind of oh what I see from some human doctors of just like oh you're in for this okay we're gonna give you that uh like they'll charge you out on the way and we'll give you your medication um yep have a good day whereas I usually go a little bit more in depth of like oh he has a sore throat or he's sneezing most likely I'm thinking this this and this which like we could do these tests or we could try on this medication and see how it goes I usually recommend the medication first if you're having some financial strains constraints um, otherwise we can try the test or you can try the meds if it doesn't work come back in a few weeks we can try the test um, but yeah so usually doctors that are pressed for time will be like okay like you have this well i think you have that here's the meds goodbye um but that's not as common i think usually usually ugh, i don't get to see a lot of other vets work like that's the thing is i might see them in the treatment area and we talk about like oh i had this weird case what do you think but i don't go into the consultation room and listen to them talk to the clients and be like how are you describing this to people? I can only see it in notes when I'll see like, why do they prescribe this medication without offering this test or that test? That's strange. And then being like, hmm, why? Or like a client will complain to me. Oh, when I worked in a corporate practice, I had one vet who he was like a good vet. He just didn't explain things to any of his clients and so i would have clients coming in on the days that i worked being like i have this medication i don't know why i'm giving it the dog's not getting better and i'm like oh well we should do this test oh well why could we have done that test last time yeah we could have i don't know why it wasn't offered to you like because this is what i think is going on and they'd be like oh well i would have done a test and i'm like i know i know and i'm like oh wow I'm sorry, it wasn't offered to you at that time. You have to like put on your professional mask and be like, yeah, that's yes. really a shame when all you want to do is point the finger and be like, that doctor there, I don't know what he's fucking thinking. But whatever. Yeah. So it's a lot. It sounds like a lot. And uh, it accumulates, I, I believe. Like if you happen to have that like once or twice a week, it's not a big deal, but then if it's like every day, multiple times a day, every week for your, you know, 40 years, that definitely accumulates. Yeah, it's at like any kind of burnout. It, it can, you can be okay for a bit, but then eventually it catches up to you. Um, unless you have a good like team supporting you, then it can, that can really help a lot. But yeah, I mean, during COVID, uh, there was the doctor that I actually, when my dog was sick, uh, when I was in college, the dog that like we had to take to the vet, um, the vet we took her to, her practice got incorporated into the corporation. Um, and she had always been super warm, super caring, really lovely person. And uh, she like quit in the middle of the day, like, just walked away. Um, it, she had like patients to see. There were still dogs that were in her care, and she just couldn't take it anymore and left. Like left the said, I quit. Left the building. Never came back. Um, and it was just like 
at that time I was thinking about quitting. And so I have been like, wow, if like this professional who I looked up to, who had kind of like been the start of my interest in this field is leaving, that might be a good sign that it's like, it, this is like time to get out. I should get out. Um, and I kind of left a month later. This is the corporate job, correct? Yeah. That was a corporate job. Um, uh, I worked there for nine months right after I graduated. Um, and like this, that paints corporations as kind of the corporate practices as bad. Um, they're not bad. Some of them do really good work. Um, it just happened that the, lo the specific location of my practice um, we didn't have, the staff was not experienced, so I was having to take on a lot more, and it was also kind of struggling financially, so that compounded some things that might have been just, like, a little bit irksome, you know, having to think about, like, oh, wellness plans, or how, how much am I charging clients, things like that, that might have been bearable in another place situation were became unbearable in that location um so yeah i hope like not all corporations are are bad there is just like some that you have to be cautious of because they may may try and and like push some things that aren't necessarily in the pet's best interest in my opinion yes and like you said it varies across locations for the same corporation. I mean, yeah. when a corporation has 50 locations at 10,000 employees, mm -hmm. you know, you can, I mean, the, what's going to happen is something's going to occur at one and then you, you apply that same action. Yeah. The, the, everyone feels the consequences, but mm -hmm. it really, you know, is, you, you never know. So, going yeah. back to what you said at the specific location maybe there's another manager for another location that makes that's a really good manager and does yeah. really you know puts an effort in for their veterinarians uh mm -hmm. and it makes their veterinarians you know day a lot better yeah but that's I a mean, big maybe well i have a friend who worked for the same corporation and when i was struggling i like called her up because i was like hey how how are you i wanted to get a, a read of you know is it just me am i like just struggling because i'm not good at this or um what and she was having a great time she worked at a completely different location she absolutely loved her job is still with her job um and wow. Yeah, so like it, you're absolutely right. It is like location dependent, um, and like I know she does good medicine, so it's just like. But I mean, that's true with any. You can do that with private practices too. I'm just speaking in terms of like the one location that I've worked at full time happened to be a corporation, and some of the problems I had working there. Yeah, it keeps coming up on the table. Wow. Uh, what a yeah. nice. He's he's 
he knows he's not allowed he knows and he openly like lays down to be like oh but i want to be up defiant. here and Fine. The defiant cat. Yes. So before you went to that job, you you had a unique experience in veterinarian school, and your veterinarian school was in Edinburgh, Scotland, correct? Yeah, I went to Edinburgh for my veterinary degree, um, mainly because it was one of the only places I got in. I applied to almost everywhere because I was really worried about, um, you know, losing my steam for school. I felt like if I didn't do veterinary school immediately, I would start working and wouldn't feel the desire, like it would be a lot harder to get back into school. Um, so I yes. got into Kansas, which is a great school um and the university of edinburgh and i was like well i can go to kansas or scotland and it's going to be the same price um so why not go to scotland so i went to scotland um my degree is technically it's weird over there because um veterinarians are bachelors um as are like medical students as well it's a bachelor's degree so you come straight out of high school into veterinary school the like young kids i'll just call them um they did their degree in five years if you already had a bachelor's degree you would get a compressed um the first two years would get compressed into one and so you would have a really fast first year and you would do four years in total. Um, so that's what I did with a, some other North American students, a couple of kids from Hong Kong, one from Beijing, one from South Africa. Um, I think that was it. Yeah. Um, and then we got incorporated into in third year. We joined up with the rest of the the students who were straight out of high school and it became a normal we sort of like stick with them for the rest of the the time everybody sort of integrated um so yeah it was a, a different experience for sure um being around people who like you know it's their first time away from home and i'd already gotten to experience all the like fun partying side of college and i was just kind of like a little grandma ready to like okay i study and i maybe go out once in a while and some of these guys are going hard and i'm like whoo i i'm ready to like guys it's 10 30 at night i'm ready for bed um but in europe that's early yeah i know <laughs> i'm very i learned i was very american um but we it was nice because i got to travel a lot more um, also, I like that the program, it has, um, so some American schools will make you track because, you know, there's so many species of animals. Um, so some schools like Davis, I know they'll make you declare when you get in, if you want to do small animal medicine or large animal medicine. And if you're doing small animal medicine, you're doing cats, dogs, um, all the like little pets. So you might be doing 
um, what we would call exotics as well. So like snakes, hamsters, turtles, guinea pigs, rats, mice, those kinds of things. Um, and then large animal birds. mice. Go ahead. Birds. Birds. Yeah, birds too. Um, and then for large animal medicine, you have a much more agricultural mindset. You're doing horses and cows, pigs, sheep. Um, and what I liked about my program in Edinburgh was they didn't track. So you had to do all the animals. Well, they had like a few major categories of animals, but I didn't know for sure that I wanted to do dogs and cats. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll do farm and I'll really like farm animals. Um, and so they made you learn all the different species and you had to test on all the different species. And it was really nice because there's also a lot less competitiveness over in Europe, I would say. People are much more, well, I've heard some things. I did not experience a lot of competitiveness and that was not the sense I got from the other UK schools. Um, people are pretty much you know, once you get into vet school, we're all in vet school together. We're all there to study together, help each other out. Whereas in American schools, there's a lot of competition over who's going to get internships, you know, who's getting the top grades in the class. Um, for us, we just had to pass our exams, which was over like 50% because the American schools will usually do it where, say you're studying the anatomy of a dog you'll have one section on cardiology which is the study of the heart and once you finish your cardiology section you immediately have a test on the anatomy of the heart um, and then you move on to the anatomy of the lungs and then you'll have a test on the anatomy of the lungs whereas in the uk it was we're doing the anatomy of the dog so in that we have heart, lungs, digestive system, every body system, and at the end you have a test that includes all of those things. So they weren't expecting you to remember 80% of everything. Sir, stop! This is a nightmare today. Um, which was really nice because you just had to focus then on, on like passing. You didn't have to focus on being the best. Um, and it was a lot to just pass as well. It was still very challenging. It was not like people were not getting 90s on these exams. Most people were getting maybe in the 60s, and we were happy with that. Um, and we had some exchange students come over from Colorado um, who were just shocked because, one, we helped each other during clinical rotations. Like, we were not there to sabotage anybody. We're there to like make sure everybody got whatever was needed to be done done. And two, we had a really good work life balance. We got every Wednesday was a half day. Um, when we were on our clinics, we worked nine to five and that was it. Whereas if you're a student in America and you're in rotations, you are like the bottom of the barrel. You're worse than an intern. You are just, you are doing all the grunt work. You are working insanely hard, much harder than the doc, actual veterinarians are, um, in the hopes that you can, you know, eventually rise to an intern where you're slightly less than, than a student and then work your way up. Um, 
but I really liked how UK set it up. It was just a very, you know, more supportive environment, which I feel like is what you want in medicine. I never understood why, like, you would want sleep-deprived, hyper-competitive people when, like, the goal should be you want the most well-rested person who has a team behind them who, if they don't know something, which you're not going to know something, that is will always happen. You are going to encounter a situation where you see an animal or a human, if you're a medic, and you don't know what to do. And you have a team who's like, oh, I've seen this before. Or they have some knowledge that you have. And you can rely on them to be like, like help me out here. Um, and that's like what it is in an actual clinic. That's something that I actually do like about veterinary medicine um, is you're very much part of a team. Everybody's like there, ideally, if you're in a good team, that's the thing. Everybody should be there to support each other. The vet should be like the kind of head of the team, but by no means does that mean you should be barking orders at people. Like your techs have a lot of information. A lot of them have a lot of experience too. Um, and they oftentimes are interacting with the animal more and will pick up things that you didn't notice. So like I'll do an exam, bring an animal back for like, hey, blood testing. And I'll have techs pick up like, hey, doctor, did you notice this lump? And I'll be like, oh, no, didn't notice that lump. Thank you so much. And sometimes you get people who be like, oh, sorry, you didn't want to step on your toes. And I'm like, no, that's what should be happening. You should be having a cohesive effort to like make sure that this animal, and it doesn't matter if it's coming from the vet or from the tech, like it should be, you know, a united front and like, we're going to do whatever we can. And I'm sure that's happens in medicine too, but like, it just never made sense to me that you would want to encourage students to be hyper, hyper competitive, to then go into a field where teamwork is absolutely necessary, you know? Like, anyway, I, I really valued my education at Edinburgh because of that. And I also got to travel a lot more, got to see some cool things. They make you work on um, farms for part of our extramural studies is what they were called. So like, I worked on a pig farm for a couple of weeks. I worked on a dairy farm. Uh, you had to go lambing, so I helped like lambing, which I birthing lambs for the season, which I did not like, but I did. Uh, what, on... Why don't you like it? Oh, it was another situation where it was like a bad farm that I landed on. Um, they just were really malnourished sheep. Like I reported the farm afterwards to Humane Society because the sheep were really, really underweight. Um, they didn't have, like, sometimes you'll have moms rejecting the lambs, um, for whatever reason, and so you'll have to bottle feed the lambs yourself. Um, we only had one bottle, which doesn't sound like a bad thing, but you have a lot of, like, lambs can get sick, and, like, if you're using one bottle on a sick lamb, and going to a healthy lamb for the same thing, like you're just spreading disease everywhere. Um, we have like, oh, like sometimes the sheep have a hard time giving birth. They might be really low on calcium or low on sugar. So you'd want to give them an injection of like a calcium supplement 
we only had one needle and it was rusted and yeah it was just really gross and we were working like really long hours really hard work and we ran out of food <laughs> um, because they didn't supply us food and they left us a car occasionally to go to the shop but we didn't always have time to go to the shop because there were three of us for 1500 sheep and each sheep has about usually two lambs sometimes three sometimes four so it was a lot and like by the end i just was hungry <laughs> that was mainly it by the end of the like the last week i was having two meals a day and one meal would be like a can of tomato soup and the other was like like a small bowl of rice with a slice of like deli ham because and then i was like trying to find any kind of fat or calories so we had ketchup and mayo and i just like doused the rice with ketchup and mayo because i was like yeah i need some form of food and fuel and I like lost like twenty pounds during that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why I like learning. But other people had good experiences. That was just that particular farm was a bad place. Themselves. That farm off the beaten path. Um, no, it was. Oh, that was the other thing. It was run by. It was in Wales. It was run by this family and the like dad had been a farmer and they had been farmers for generations but he kind of retired and left it in the care of his daughter and her husband the daughter and the husband had never partaken in any of the farming they lived in london most of their time and you know worked from home so they decided oh let's let's just move out back to the farm. We'll um, still work from home, but how great to raise the kids, you know, in the countryside. So they didn't know anything about really the farming. They just had a shepherd who was in his 70s and was also about to retire and had been doing his shepherding the same way for the past 50 years without like change. So, you know, like they just were like oh yeah it's fine and i remember they brought some of their friends from london onto the farm to see the lambs and see the lambing season and these sheep are strong you like essentially so what you do they're all in pens um if you're doing indoor lambing sometimes they'll be outdoors and you have to go on atvs and find the ones that are in contractions and then you tackle them you jump off the atv and you tackle them and you like help them pull out and you're only doing this if they have not if you notice contractions and you've like marked the sheep and they haven't passed any like babies in the next like hour or so um so indoor lambing they're all in pens um so you have a little bit of an advantage there but that means you like go into a pen and you need to like herd them into a corner and see the one you want and you like either use a, sh a crook, which is the, the like long pole with the, like, you know, little bow peep? Yes. Yeah, the, the pole that she has a, a long curve on the end, you use that to hook around the sheep's neck and like curl their head down so that they flip and fall down and then you can help assist wow. them. Um, but they're strong, they're about, yeah. They're about six, 50 to 60 kilos. So 
100 to 120 pounds, which for me, I'm 410 and like 130, maybe, maybe 120. Like they're my size. So I'm having to like, huh, and I got one sheep and I was like wrestling it out of the pen. And these people from London came down and I was fine, but to them, it did not look like I was fine. And so they go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like, we need to help, we need to help. And they start shouting and yelling, which freaks the sheep out more. And so it struggles and gets away. And they're like, are you okay? And I was just like, it's like I am fine. And they kept letting their little seven-year-old girl jump in and play with the lamb, the baby lambs, which not a good idea. Moms are very protective when their babies are just born if they haven't rejected them and will headbutt you. And it it for it can hurt an adult man. It's gonna knock out a seven-year-old girl. Like, and we kept telling them, I, I kept like eventually I went to the parents and I was like, so Sophie really wants to come help with lambing. Um, I can't have her there. And they're like, oh, but she's fine, she gets on her own. And I was like, I understand that. I cannot be liable for her. Like, it's really because what she would do is she would scream that she wanted a lamb. And we'd be like, well, we have to wait for the lambs to, like, get born. We can't just, you know, make them give birth right now. She's like, well, I only want a black one. Jesus, child. And the parents thought it was so cute. And what, like, it was good because I've always lived in cities. So I never, like, experienced farm life. But people don't realize it's dangerous, dangerous work. Like farmers are constantly getting beaten up and like just dealing with it. And people think, oh yeah, cute, cute little lambs, cute pigs. They are cute. Yes, they're very strong too. And they are dangerous. Like you need to know how to work with them. Can't just let your kids go running around willy nilly because they're gonna get hurt and then I'd be liable anyway. So lambing, was like, I had no people who had great experiences though. Like they, their farmers cooked for them. They had like, they gained weight because they had such good food. Um, and it is like, some people love the experience because you do get to like help little baby lambs. I mean, it's very cute, but yeah, I was just, nah, I don't like being dirty. I don't like being wet. I don't like being cold. And that's what a lot of like lambing is. Wow. And not not being not eating well, not being in a nice like a decent place. That's a that is a huge deal. Yeah, it takes a toll. Yeah, it was a definitely a challenging experience that I'm glad I don't have to do again. And that probably pushed you away from large animal veterinary veterinary services. Yeah. Um. A little bit. I mean, as a vet, you're not usually, especially for sheep, unfortunately, um, you're not usually helping with lambing. Um, it's more of what pushed me away from it is like you have to shift your mentality from like, oh, this is an animal that I want to help get better regardless to how much does this animal cost? How much is the treatment I'm going to do cost? Um, because for the farmers, the animals are their livelihood. If the treatment you're saying is going to 
alter their finished product in a way that it is not uh, worth, like doesn't balance out the cost of the treatment or keep them profitable, there is not much point. Um, some, that said, like farmers do usually really love their animals and take great pride in taking care of their animals, but it's just that shift, which is a lot harder. You have to go to population medicine um, instead of like the individual. So now you're thinking about like, okay, I'm not just here because one cow has problems with walking. I'm here because the herd, have, we've been seeing more incidences of walking problems. So we need to figure out, is this infection? Is this poor husbandry? Meaning like they're walking in really slick mud or maybe their own poop. Um, and trying to like work out, okay, do I need, how do we treat, how do we like advise like changes on the farm to make sure this doesn't happen in the future? Um, how do we like essentially, and then a lot of it is making like, how do we increase the productivity of these animals, um, by ensuring that they are healthy and that their welfare is good. So like, I don't know if you've seen that like cows, people are introducing like big brushes for cows now. Um, but for the that's, body? Yeah. Um, it's yes. something that like some vet researchers discovered like cows really, really like being brushed and they really like being massaged. Um, and after like they introduced these brushes, they produced more milk and they had lower incidences of disease. So like that is a way that vets in the farm world can help. But I just wasn't so good at being able to like disassociate myself and being like, okay, seeing the numbers and the business side of it. I've never been very good at that. Um, I got into this because I like really love the animals. And so it was hard. I strayed from farm animals because of that, um, because I didn't like the idea of, I didn't think I would be good at, at just seeing them as numbers, um, which you're not just seeing them as numbers. I didn't think I'd be good at the business side of it. Um, and then horses, I knew I never wanted to do. I don't really like horses. They're very big. They're very skittish. They're very dangerous. Um, yes. A lot of times the people who have them have a lot of money, which means a lot if something goes wrong they get very very mad um and yeah i'm just i never never wanted to go into horse medicine when i finished my equine rotation i like cheered because i was like i never have to touch a horse in a medical way ever again i can just go oh, there's a horse nice horse I feel like horses are the one animal that have lost a lot of use. A lot of, uh, in the last 100 years, like the horse went from the most useful animal in the world to kind of, there's really no point to have a horse. Yeah, useless. Yeah. I mean, in our area of the world, I feel like there are some people who still have ranches and like it's easiest to use a horse. Um, but like in Southern California, no, people who have horses are like rich, posh people who like very rich, very posh, a fancy lawnmower essentially is what my, 
what my teachers called them. Um, wow. Oh no, he called alpacas a fancy lawnmower. Um, but yeah, like some, I know like in Morocco, like one of our professors, our equine professors used to do uh, veterinary work in Morocco where like they still use horses, horses and donkeys they use a lot. Um, wow. And those are livelihood things. But yeah, for, for like, developed countries like the u.s and the uk they're just they're just expensive pets to be honest some people really yes like and unlike uh cows and chickens and pigs those are you know and you called them numbers products you know yeah. those are at things the end we, of the day what things, things we, we like eat. Yeah. yeah yes even you know the cow's milk is a product itself mm -hmm. So you really, you know, it's not about taking care of them. It is about taking care of the animals, but it's really about maintaining the product's well-being, exactly. security for the product, making sure, you know, the businessman, which is the farmers, uh, you know, his business is running profitably because, exactly. you know, unfortunately, he has to make a profit in order for that to actually function. But yeah. at the same time, you know, I'm sure, like you said, you have to be very aware of that. So if this is a, you know, farmer who has antibiotic-free mm. cows, does that change your, does that change the way you can uh, treat the cow, like based off of how the, you know, specific requirements by each farmer? Yeah, 100%. Um, if they have, uh, so yeah, having like organic grade anything, um, you're usually going to be using a vet more as a, like, um, you're going to be using them more in terms of how to design your farm and how to make like husbandry changes. I think, hmm, I don't want to misspeak here. I'm because I'm not super confident in what the rules are regarding organic animals. I'm pretty sure like you can still use antibiotics, but there's a certain withdrawal period um, and you have to be using them to treat a specific illness, like back in, you know, maybe like 2050, let's say 50, let's be generous. 50 years ago, we used to be using antibiotics as like supplements, essentially, because we were like, oh, yeah, we'll just make sure they're constantly not getting infections. Um, and I think with organic farms now, like say you have a chicken that's ill, like you can still have a vet come in and be like, here's some antibiotics, but it's like targeted. Like I am trying to treat chlamydia. I am trying to treat what's another chicken illness. Oh God, I don't know any chicken illnesses. I'm trying to cheat, treat something specific. I'm not just like, oh, here's some antibiotics. Um, and then there has to be a certain period before you can slaughter that animal to go to human consumption. But that's the same with any medicines. I don't know the exact time periods, but I do know that it would change how you would administer medications or if you would at all, um, which is like why sometimes I'm not like I 
I love the idea of organic things, especially like vegetable crops and fruits, because then you're not like having pesticide usage. For animals, I'm a little bit more hesitant just because I feel like there are times when like if an animal is sick, it needs antibiotics. Like you should give it something to treat it. Um, but again, you don't really know the rules of organic um, animal farming. So I'll have to like look into that and get back to you. I know there are rules. Okay. There. <laughs> yes, if you were in that uh, field of veteran, vet, veteran, what do you, veterinary, it's called veterinary uh, medicine. animal, veterinarian medicine. If you were in that there field of veterinarian medicine, you'd probably know. Yeah, I would probably have to know, but yeah, I, I just, like I said, it's much more of a business and I've never been a good business person. <laughs> Yes, and you know most veterinarian veterinarians and doctors—they're not business people. They're—they want to help. They want to help for doctors, human beings, for veterinarians, animals, and it's not an easy path, especially in the USA, to start out on. So I mean, it's if when someone's committing to that, they usually suspect that they have some sort of desire to help and to assist yeah. and to provide care for mm -hmm. for others yeah and so katie you said that you are considering leaving vet veteran you know leaving this industry are there mm -hmm. any other careers or paths that veterinarians can you know are shifting towards can shift towards or is there anything that you're particularly thinking of it's a good question i i don't know about the general veterinary populace like i don't know what careers people who have left are more drawn to i can only really speak for myself um I'm interested right now in academia um, and a little bit more research, uh, but not necessarily veterinary related. I'm more interested in like marine biology, climate change kind of things, because um, I still really want to help um, in some way, but I need it to be a little less individual. Like it can't be... I'm helping, I need to help Fluffy because if Fluff, like, and then if Fluffy passes away or whatever or suffers because of something I did or didn't do, like, that's really hard. But, like, climate change, ecosystems, one, I'm super interested in, and two, I feel like it's an important area to be focusing on. Um, so that's where I'm kind of drawn right now. They always said in veterinary school, oh, you don't have to be in practice. Like, you can go on to do anything else with your degree. So I think they told us something that, like, an astronaut was a veterinarian at one point. Um, there are, like, you know, sometimes people will go into, like, the pharmaceutical industry um, as a veterinarian. Um, some people will go into, like, research specifically with like animal research um but 
that's as far as I know. Um, I'm the only one of my class at the moment that I know that is thinking my graduating class that um, has like determined to like leave this industry. Most of my friends are still within the field. Um, not a lot of them seem really thrilled by it. Um, but yeah, I think I, I would have to talk to some more senior veterinarians who, who are leaving. Um, cause I don't know where they're going, to be honest. They must be going somewhere. Um, hello, sir. Hello, hello. sir. <laughs> so there's, there's multiple people leaving right now. And you mentioned this at the beginning, but like the industry is facing a problem of veterinarians leaving. Yes. It's, it's a really, it kind of, what was it during COVID? The great resignation. Yes. Um, that, that sort of happened in the veterinary field as well, because of, I think the factors of like COVID um, that I mentioned earlier about people getting more pets and having such a large influx um, just compounded a lot of things and people left um, everywhere. I keep getting phone calls or messages from my previous, uh, the corporation that I worked for asking, hey, would you be interested in, in coming back? And I told them multiple times, no, not interested. I don't, I don't want to. Almost every practice I have worked at as a relief veterinarian, so which is probably, mm, let's see, one, two. I want to say like maybe 10 or 12 places that I've worked at. Every single one of them has been looking to hire vets. Every one of them is down um, at least like one vet, maybe even two or three. Um, it's like, and it's not just in the States because I do have some friends back in the UK. Um, the, the same thing happened over there. People are like, the industry is really, really hurting for veterinarians. And the sad thing is, is it's putting a lot of pressure and toll on the ones that are remaining. Um, so it's likely that I think it'll continue to happen um, because, you know, people can only take so much. Um, and when we have new grads coming into the field, you really, really need a mentor. You really need somebody who is going to be kind of like looking out for you, but also there as a sounding board to be like, hey, I, I have this case. I think I want to do this plan. Do you think that sounds good? And for them to kind of, you know, correct you, guide you, give you tips and tricks. Like it's super important. And since we're having a lot of people leaving the field, um, I kind of worry for like the future generations of vets because I'm not sure that there will be a lot of those mentors left for, for them. Um, hopefully there, there are still plenty of people who've, who've remained, um, but there's definitely a deficit right now. Everyone's really, we, there's still a lot of pets and uh, what's happening is essentially we have general practices and we have like 
specialty and emergency facilities. So think of your general practice as like your dog has been coughing a bit or has just started limping um, or is drinking more water, something like that. You go to them first and that's what I do. I do general practice and, and we kind of assess things and then we'll, if it's something we can treat, we treat. If it's something more complex or more life-threatening, we refer to an emergency facility or a specialty facility. Um, so what's happening is a lot of the emergency facilities have not have vets to cover, which means that we will try and refer cases that are emergencies that need emergency surgery or something like that to emergency places and they will not have the vets they won't have a vet to take like to do the surgery they won't have a vet to triage they simply cannot take it or they'll have a waiting list of like oh eight i think six hours was the longest i heard where wow. like and yeah. you don't relieve for emergency right you only relief for general yeah um emergency relief you can make even a lot like a lot more um but like i said you you need some more specific training if you're going to be doing emergency work like you should ideally be have done an internship maybe even a residency in emergency medicine um and so like emergency vets have left general practitioners have left so now when we try and refer things it might be like our patients have to wait longer they can't be seen so we're having to be like okay well maybe we'll try ourselves or maybe we euthanize more patients than we want to um or like which happens a lot because emergency facilities are expensive and so some people just won't go to emergency um we'll just kind of say no you're too ex they're too expensive what can you do here um and then other times you know you'll have those cases i mentioned where people will walk in or call the day of to be like oh hey my dog or cat is suddenly doing this can you see them and you're like no i'm fully booked i can't we can send you to like there are three other hospitals near us that are veterinary hospitals and they'll have been like we tried we couldn't get in um and so like i had one patient the other day who um was very sad he he had a lot of things going on it was a german shepherd um and like his owner noticed something was wrong on monday and couldn't get an appointment for him anywhere until Friday. Um, and by Friday, I mean, I don't think it would have made a whole lot of difference, but it's just an example of like, we, we had to put him to sleep on Friday. Um, it's just like another example of like, people are having to wait a lot um, because we don't have the vets to see the amount of pets we have. So it's getting backed up. People are getting booked up a lot faster. Whenever we're referring people to like surgeons um, or other like type specialists, usually I will always tell them like, go now, schedule an appointment 
like today so that you can get put on the wait list because their wait lists are usually like a month long. Um, and so for some of these things, it's like dog has a torn ACL, needs surgery. And it's like, well, now we're going to have it wait a month on pain meds, which is not ideal until it can get this surgery. Um, or, oh, it's eye is like about to rupture. We need an ophthalmologist to do something now. It's like, well, the ophthalmologist is booked six weeks out. Like, so, yeah, I, I really think that it's, I don't know if it's at a tipping point, but it's definitely in a downturn. Um, and I think, like, the only way it's going to change is if we start paying, one, the technicians and the nurses more. Um, because they're the ones who like really can take a burden off of the vets themselves. You have a good technician, you can see, you can see a lot more patients in a day than like if you have, I had, well, when I was working at the corporate, there were, there was one technician who I really got along with and she and I, we could see 17 pets in a day easily. There was no problem, wow. just me and me. Um, when I had two other technicians, like, working with me, I could maybe see 12, maybe, on a good day. Yeah. Um, and so, like, what, having those, go ahead. What does this, what does a technician do? And how does one help? Yeah, so a technician is, they can do a lot of things, they can intubate a pet for you. So if you have a surgery, they can um, essentially administer the anesthetics and then place the, the tube down the throat, down the windpipe, which will allow us to ventilate the pet. Um, for dental procedures, they can clean the teeth, um, they can remove teeth, they can suture things, um, they can suture things for surgeries as well um they can administer vaccines um and they can administer other medications that like have been actually assistants can do that as well um but they can administer other medications that like the pets consistently come in for so um that's what legally a technician is allowed to do now an assistant can do pretty much all of those things, a veterinarian just has to be present as well. And they will all be able to place IV catheters, draw blood, run blood work, monitor anesthesia for you. Um, they, they save me so much in terms of like, they usually discuss money for you. Um, so they will put to, I will say, this is the plan I want. These are the tests I want. And they'll be like, okay. And they'll put together an estimate and go over the money with the client um they will um essentially like if i say i need blood and i need urine they will be the ones to collect it um while i go in and see my next patient and then i'll come back in and they'll be like here's the blood and here's the urine results and i'll be like okay see it got it we have a uti where you don't have kidney disease here's some we're going to put them on this antibiotics here's the dosage here's how long i want them to go for can you input this into the computer and be like, yes, I'll make an estimate, talk to the client. And I'm like, good, they're good to go. So like when Just you have, 
Curiosity, how do you get urine on demand from a pet? Um, so you can either um, do a free catch where you take them for a walk and you catch it with a cup. Okay. I don't like that one as much because it's challenging. Um, or you can do ultrasound guided, which is what I really like, where essentially you put them on their back, you have an ultrasound, you have a, a very long but but like thin needle, um, and you essentially can visualize their bladder. And that one I like because sometimes if they've just peed or they don't have urine, you don't have to waste your time like waiting for them to pee. You can see like, oh, their bladder's tiny. They don't have anything for me. Never mind. We'll we'll either send them home with a collection kit or they'll come back another day and we'll try. But also with the ultrasound, you can see like the thickness of the bladder. You can see if there's stones within the bladder, any masses. Um, and so once you, the bladder usually sits like maybe that like far below the skin. So you just boop, poke it through, pull it out. And that way you get a sterile sample. Um, and so if you find bacteria in that, you don't have to worry about, did it come from like, you know, the, the end of the urethra where like their genitals are, or is it actually in the bladder? You know, for a fact, like, oh, we have bacteria, you have a UTI. Um, so yeah, technicians do a lot. Receptionists do a lot, but like paying technicians so that you can keep them and that they stay is like, it's so, so important. It's really, really, I think they're so undervalued and they often don't get paid a lot. And most of them work multiple jobs. I'm like, oh, if they just were paid more, like you could keep good technicians there and vets would have the support they would need. So like within the industry, I think that's what needs to change. Without, outside of the industry, I think people need to start viewing their pets as like, not just like, like they need to start thinking about financial costs. Like sooner or later, something is gonna happen. Um, like unless you're fully planning on never taking your pet to the vet, you will probably have a veterinary visit. <laughs> once in your pet's life and it might be at the end of your pet's life and then that's always really sad to be like I'm so sorry I know I'm putting your pet to sleep but I have to charge you money for that because these drugs cost a lot of money um and so like just having that in mind and not seeing pets as like an accessory to your life but like realizing that oh I'm gonna get a cat I'm gonna get a dog like that means vaccines, that means annual checkups, that means, um, you know, like saving money or develop, getting a health insurance account, pet insurance for them, so that if something does go wrong, like it's there for them. And I know that that is a very like privileged mindset because not everybody can afford to save for their pets and not everybody can afford pet insurance. But there are like, I think then you just have to be like cognizant of the fact that like still, if something happens, if you want it treated, it will cost money. It's going to be expensive. It's, there's like no other way around it. Unfortunately, like I wish it didn't cost money. I wish I could just do things for free. But that is not how capitalism works, sadly. No. Um, <laughs> and to go back to what you said, um, it's 
it's unfortunately not a right you know having a pet it's not an accessory and sometimes when someone wants a pet they they think of it as an accessory like oh i'm gonna have this pet i'm never gonna be sad because i'm always gonna have a pet around the, all my friends you know i love when i go and see my friend's dog they're my friends are now gonna love me because i have a dog and be more willing to hang out with me but it's like this is a very serious uh it's very serious one those one these are actually cognizant animals so mm -hmm. that animal has sentience it feels something it feels bad things often and so we just have to be aware of that and just be able to i don't know just before we get the pet understand that this is a sentient animal it's it's like us it needs to go to the doctor yeah that's all like that's all it's and then the main like i think the main trap people get into is like puppies or kittens um and like just being like oh i found someone on craigslist who is selling puppies for like 150 dollars great um and that is the number one time where we see pets coming in with like serious illnesses really bad illnesses and like things that are going to be upwards of like a couple thousand dollars because like you know somebody just said oh i'm gonna have puppies and i'll sell them and it'll be great and didn't know like oh there's some serious like there's parvo there's distemper mainly parvo to be honest um but like people just think oh yeah i'm just gonna get a cheap puppy i think knowing like hey puppies are like Pup, the like youngest animals, those are the ones that are going to have the most, young and old will have the most expenses because when they're young, they need vaccines. They need like to be spayed or neutered. Um, and they usually like might have, are going to be more prone to illnesses when they're younger. Same when they're older, they're going to have all the old age things. And so like thinking like, oh, I'm just going to get a, a cute little puppy for my kid for Christmas. And like it's only $150 or $100, whatever. Like, and then you have the tragedy of bringing home the pet. It's super unwell. Your kid thought you brought home a lovely puppy for them. And now you have to make the trip to the vet who's like, okay, so this is going to be very expensive, very, very expensive. And you thought you were taking the easy way out by getting something inexpensive up front. I'm not saying go to like a reputable breeder and buy things. Shelters will make sure that their dogs are vaccinated as well. But just being a little bit more cautious of where you're getting these animals from. Um, because like these people are kind of like making money off of their like their lack of medical knowledge <laughs> for the like like oh my dog had the breeders not breed not all breeders no no i'm talking about like we call them backyard breeders um because okay. they're people who like have not done any research their animals just had just like were not spayed were not neutered whatever got pregnant have dogs maybe they like have had do puppies before 
And they're like, oh, awesome. Like, I can just make some money by selling these. Like, the people who don't, like, do the research and know what's... And then you have other, oh, God, crazy breeders who think they know everything and know everything, like, will say, don't listen to your vet. I had my first week as a vet, I was threatened to be... <laughs> my mentor was like shouted at by a breeder on the phone saying, I'm going to sue you. Uh, I'm going to sue everyone in your hospital because you're lying to these people and telling them that my dog is my, the puppy I sold them is sick and you're going to try and falsely charge them with a bill that they don't need. The puppy's going to get better in like a couple of days. And we were like, no, you're, this puppy has a serious life-threatening condition and is most likely going to die and did die. Um, but wow. like, the people who, like, there are, it's just, if you're going to buy a puppy and you get a weird feeling, don't do it. Like, like, there's no rush. You can always, your kid, you can always, like, go after Christmas and go to a shelter or find a breeder and establish a conversation. Like, people who just make these snapshot decisions of, like, now we're, like, look, there's a puppy. We're getting it. Um, at like places where you're like, eh, there doesn't seem to be any, like, I don't know, like, it doesn't seem super clean. The dogs, like, there are a lot of animals here. Just like, just think, just think a little bit, a little bit beforehand, and it will save you such heartache. And like, it's really, it's really sad for us too when we see, when we have puppy cases like that, because everyone loves puppies for the most part. You come in, yes, when you see when you come get a puppy that comes in and you're like bloody diarrhea hasn't eaten super tired your heart just sinks because you almost always are like i know what this is i need to do hey stop scratching um you know it's parvovirus you know it's like life-threatening if what you is can parvovirus so it's a virus that adult dogs can have with no symptoms, no signs. But if puppies get it, um, and usually they'll get it from their mom, um, it gets into their digestive system and it attacks the, they're like these little villi that are kind of like little kelp that live in the digestive system. And it's to increase the surface area for absorption and what they will do because they can absorb all along their surfaces so what the virus does it attacks these villi it destroys them so you can't absorb any nutrients you can't really absorb water either so they get really dehydrated um, puppies have a much higher metabolism and a higher need for nutrients so essentially they're like starving to death because even if you feed them they can't they can't absorb it and then once it's destroyed the villi, it will then start attacking the white blood cells and start killing white blood cells. And then you, they'll be, they usually succumb to like secondary infections from their gut. Um, so it's a really serious virus. One that like, if we, if we suspect a puppy has it, I like put on a full isolation gown. I put on gloves, I put on a hairnet. I have to look at my schedule and see what other puppies am I seeing for the day. Okay, I'm going to avoid touching as many of these young animals as possible. 
Um, and then you have like bleach to disinfect yourself. You have Parvasol, which specifically kills the virus. Um, and the virus will live in the environment for six months. It doesn't care if there's water wow. or sunlight. So if you have it, what, what often happens is breeders who don't necessarily know about it, their mom, the mom dog usually has the virus, will transmit it to the puppies. Um, and the puppies are usually doing fine when they're feeding off of mom because mom has antibodies for it. And they sell the puppies. The puppies go home. Now they don't have mom's antibodies anymore, but they still have the virus. And so they start going downhill and either the owners don't contact the peep, the breeders or whatever. Um, and so like they'll sell off all these puppies that seem well, the puppies get home and like within the next day or two, they start getting sick. Um, but a dog can have a litter every six months. So even if you like manage to, uh, usually what will happen with these breeders who are not reputable is they'll sell off the puppies and be like, okay, time to get my dog pregnant again. Um, and so six months later, if there's still any of the virus around from now the puppies and the mom, the next round of puppies gets it. Um, and it like continues the cycle. So pyrovirus, you can, you can't really treat, you have to treat the symptoms. So it's very expensive to treat because what it means is you hospitalize the puppy, you put them on an IV catheter and you give them fluids to prevent the dehydration. You give them antibiotics to prevent secondary infections. You might give them sugar um, if they're really like low blood glucose and you have to try and feed them um, because the only way that the villi regenerate themselves is if they have nutrition inside the gut um, and that can take and so it's just intensive nursing care and that can take up to a week but that means a week of hospitalization which gets very expensive very quickly um, so most people don't have that money um, if you have the money to do it like their chance of survival goes up to like 75%. If you don't, it's more like 50-50. Um, Cause a lot of people will try to do it at home, give them like water at home, um, give them food at home. We'll give them long lasting antibiotics. Um, but it it's not, usually you're expecting that they pass away, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. That is unfortunate. But theoretically, if they were to stick on the mom's breast milk, mm -hmm. the antibodies would be fed to them and they wouldn't get sick? Or is that still a no. rare case? So, like, after a certain point, the antibodies... How much depth do you want this in? You can pull... Yeah, go, go deep. Okay. So when when the puppies are first born the mom produces something called colostrum this is true for all ant mammals um, and colostrum is the milk that is like jam jam packed with nutrients and antibodies and that's made within like that has to be drunk within the first 24 hours of life um so you drink that and then your immune system dog's immune system 
cow's immune system, any mammal, their immune system then gets full of their mom's antibodies, um, as well as the nutrition. After about 24 hours, um, the barrier in the digestive system that allows these antibodies to like seep through into the bloodstream stream spills over. So you can't absorb antibodies anymore from your mom, but you can absorb nutrients. However, you will keep the antibodies you've already absorbed from your mom for up to eight weeks. Um, so they'll be circulating in your immune system um, while your own immune system is kind of developing. So a lot of times, vets, we will not vaccinate animals until after they're eight weeks old. And the reason for that is, if we give you them a vaccine for a disease that their mom had antibodies to, whether their mom had the disease or had the vaccination, their mom's antibodies will attack the vaccine and destroy it before the puppy's own immune system gets a chance to see the vaccine and develop it, their antibodies for it. So what happens is usually around weaning is when they start selling puppies. Weaning is like six to eight weeks of age. So it just so happens that it coincides. The weaning process coincides with when the mom's antibodies are declining. After about eight weeks, there are no more maternal antibodies in your system. It's all on your own immune system at that point. So these puppies get parvo from their mom, get anti might get antibodies for parvo from their mom. They have these antibodies circulating for up to eight weeks. At around six to eight weeks, they get sold. So then their own immune system has to be start fighting the parvovirus. And by that time, they're usually with their new family and then they start getting sick. Um, so that like also explains why um, sometimes if you bring your pet in and a young animal and you'll say they'll have already been vaccinated but your vet might look at how old they were when they were vaccinated and be like no we should vaccinate again it's for that reason because they will probably have their moms they might have their mom's maternal antibodies still in the system so the first vaccine didn't work um so that's why like a lot sometimes older vets will do like four vaccines, four boosters of the vaccine. I prefer to do three because I just would prefer to be like, let's just wait until I know for sure. And that way I don't have to poke them more than they need to be poked. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times people get frustrated when they come in and I'm like, they're vaccinated too young. This vaccine means nothing. Like they need to be vaccinated again. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what happens with like how parvovirus develops in in puppies unfortunately yeah so the colostrum has to be drunk within 24 hours and yeah. after birth and then that colostrum holds the antibodies and those antibodies will last in the puppy's body for about eight weeks which is yes. also <laughs> the time they are usually sold off to their eventual owners correct yeah 
So that's perfect for the breeder because they don't have to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, there are many breeders who are really on top of their game, but they're, but you don't need anything to be a breeder. You don't need to like go to school. You don't need to like have studied anything. You, all you need is a dog that hasn't been spayed and another dog like, and you can be a breeder and you can, so like, there are definitely people who are doing it right and making sure that their animals are healthy and clean. Um, but there are other people who are willing to take advantage because you know you can you can make a buck because everyone likes puppies and people will pay for puppies or kittens. Kittens not as much. It's usually puppies. Yeah. So and it's up to us because you know our our the money we spend is a vote. And so if we spend money on negligent breeders, then our, we're voting for the, you know, for continuation of negligent breeding and we're promoting negligent breeding. But if we, like you said, are aware, it's very tough, especially, you know, yeah. usually both instances where I've gotten my dog, it's been like, I want a dog. And so we kind of yeah. go get a dog. So, mm -hmm. but it's very important that people are aware of where their how their dog is being bred and you know yeah. if it's a healthy dog or cat and like something i wish i don't know that a lot of vets would do this i would love to do this um if you are thinking of getting an animal i think it would be really great to just go to your vet go to a vet be like, I have some questions. What do I need to know? Um, because then, like, that's the thing is like, I have all this information because I went to school for four years, but like, I can't expect everybody to have that information. It's more of just like, sometimes you can get a, a feeling if something seems a little sketchy, trust your gut and like, go with that. But also, if you, I can give you questions to ask your breeder, like, please ask me because I would tell you like ask them oh like have you had instances of parvo do you have vaccines like that you are giving the mom do you have vaccines that you're giving the puppies how old are you giving them the vaccines where do you store the vaccines that's the other thing you don't need to be a vet to administer vaccines you don't need to have any license at all um, you can just buy vaccines and if they're your animal they're your property you can give them vaccines that doesn't mean you have to know how to store them properly. That doesn't mean you wow. need to know to do an allergic reaction. So like just having those basic things of like knowing, okay, like have they had, and you know, like I'm not saying anyone's going to admit to you of having parvo, like that wouldn't be a, a good idea for them. Um, but if they do, or if they, are like, oh, don't, you don't need to worry about Parvo. That's a red flag. That you should be worried about Parvo. Like, especially if you're getting a puppy that's around that age of like eight weeks old. Like, if they, if the breeder themselves is not concerned about Parvo in general, not just to say like with their animals, if they're like, oh, you know, I wouldn't worry about Parvo with my dogs. We make sure they're vaccinated, their mom is vaccinated, the dad 
is like vaccinated, we keep it very clean. That's one thing. If they say, oh, don't worry about Parvo. No, no. Parvo is very serious. Okay. Just like someone who's like, don't worry about COVID. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, we should be a little concerned. <laughs> like, hopefully these dogs are fine. So the sad thing is a lot of people get get duped because the puppies seem fine when they get them and they'll just go home. Um, and then, yeah, they hit it at that curve where the mom's antibodies go down. Benjamin, stop jumping yes. up on the table. So, Katie, you mentioned, you know, what pe people can be more respectful and more patient with their veterinarians. They can mm -hmm. be aware of how they obtain their new pets and mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, the breeders or, you know, whatever distributors they're getting their pets from are responsible. Are there any last words or thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience? Um, honestly, no. I think I pretty much talked your ear off. <laughs> um, just, you know, keep in mind that, like, it's a tough time for the industry right now. So we're just as frustrated about, like, waiting times and things as, as you guys are. And we're all just trying our best. My guest today has been Katie Stein. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Katie. Thank you.